Hello, I'm John Grisham, and this is Book Tour. Today I'll have a conversation with Harlan Coben and Christina Baker-Klein, and we'll talk about books, reading, writing, publishing, and all things related to that world. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this special series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today I'm in Paramus, New Jersey, at what I believe is the largest Barnes & Noble store in the country. My guests today are Christina Baker-Klein, author of The Orphan Train. I met Christina three years ago when we were in Houston, Texas for the Barbara Bush Literacy Annual Party. My other guest is Harlan Coben, a guy I just met, but I've known him for years through his crime fiction. Our host is Joyce Frommer, and here she is. Thank you so much for joining us today at Barnes & Noble in Paramus for this very special literary event. We are so fortunate to be joined by not one, not two, but three best-selling authors. Our guest of honor, who is kicking off his first book tour in 25 years, is John Grisham. Mr. Grisham is being joined now for a conversation with our other best-selling guests, Harlan Coben, most recent bestseller, Home, and Christina Baker-Klein, most recent bestseller, A Piece of the World. I've already been asked uh, why I am touring again, because I had one nationwide book tour in 1992 with the Pelican Brief. And it was one of those 35 cities in 33 days tours that was really unpleasant and counter, <laughs> counterproductive. I mean, a book tour sounds really romantic. You know, people would love to go on a book tour. You know, you had, there are good times and bad times, lots of interviews. So I finished that book tour in 1992, and I told my publisher Doubleday, I said, look, we have a choice here. Um, I, can, uh, I can go home and write the next novel, or I can hit the road again and try to be a celebrity. And I don't want to do that. Uh, I'd like to give you guys another novel. And that was the last time I toured. Uh, For about 10 years after that, I would go to five bookstores in Mississippi, the same five stores, friends of mine who had helped me with The Time to Kill. When Time to Kill came out in 1989, they printed 5,000 hardback copies, and it was a total flop. Uh, We couldn't give the book away, and it was very depressing. But there were some stores that tried to help me, and, and I made friends. So it was very easy a few months later when The Firm came out and then subsequent books to go back to those stores and hang out with friends and, you know, sign a bunch of books. And the signings got to where we would sign for 15 hours. And that's, that may sound like fun to some of y'all, but it's not any fun at all. So we finally cut back to, you know, 10, 12, uh, 5 hours, and finally I just quit. I quit going to bookstores, and today... Uh, it was the first time I've been in a bookstore signing books in a long time. And, and I, I really intend to do more of it. I think, it's, um, I think we all should. I think best-selling writers should go to the great bookstores to, to say thanks, to meet with you folks, to, uh, to let you meet us if you want to, listen to us, buy books, and kind of gin up enthusiasm for books because books, book sales are still declining in this country. And, and, and bookstores are in trouble. So I'm not saying we're here to save bookstores, but uh, that's one reason that um, I am uh, going on tour again. And so far, I'm having a lot of fun. Um, Christina, you're on a tour, aren't you? Yeah. You're, you're on this tour from hell that never ends, right? <laughs> I saw her. I met her back in March, and I'm, I've known Harlan for a long time. We met seven minutes ago back in the green room for the first time. Uh, I met Christina back in... Um, Ooh. No, we went in Houston. Yeah. We met in Houston at yeah. the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation a couple of years ago. And then two years ago, I mean, two months ago in March, she came through Charlottesville, Virginia for the book festival. And uh, we, had a, we had a lot of fun hanging out together. But you, you were touring then, right? Yeah, we did have a lot of fun hanging out. Um, and I just wanted you to know that I did not choose to sit here. John made me sit here. He really should be. Two thorns. He's right. The rose between the two thorns. He made me sit thorns. in the middle. He's so, he's so courtly and Southern. Um, but anyway, I'm delighted to be here. Um, before I 
talk about the book tour, I do just want to tell them how I met you because, um, so I was invited after I wrote my novel Orphan Train, after it became a bestseller, Barbara Bush's foundation called and said they wanted me to do an event with John Grisham and Walter Isaacson, which was pretty exciting. So I trundle onto the plane and we, we were staying in this gorgeous hotel that the Bushes stayed in when they left the White House and it's all very glamorous. And here I am with these two. It was, let me just tell you, terrifying um, and surrounded by Bushes the whole time. So, um, and then we're in this auditorium of like 3,700 people and they've given us strict instructions. Everybody has like 15 or 20 minutes on stage in front of all of these people with all the bushes in the front row um, staring at you to talk. And they've sort of given us clear, you know, you can't read, you can't do this, you can't do that. So I think Walter Isaacson went and was incredible. And then I went and was completely terrified, but I got through it somehow. And then John Grisham gets up and he's like, yeah, I'm not going to do anything they told me to do. (laughs) He's like, I'm just going to, I have this story that I wrote. Do you remember this? You're like, I I just feel like reading it to you guys. So he did. And of course it was brilliant and fun, but it was, it it sort of was a lesson in like, oh yes, John Grisham can get away with doing whatever he wants, um, which was really exciting. And then I was just in Charlottesville with you, um, obviously when I was on book tour at this incredible Virginia festival for the book, which is a great book festival that you and your wife, Renee, John and his wife, Renee, um, really do sort of run in a way. They, they are, they are the figureheads at least. Um, so yeah, I've been on, on tour and I think maybe you're right that it's crazy to do it. I was gone for five weeks without going home. I have a 17 year old son who's basically feral at this point. Um, and, uh, my husband and he really did learn to, I have two in college, thank goodness. But the one who was home, there's sort of the two of them and the dog learned to get by, but, uh, but it wasn't easy. And I was just saying, to John in the green room that one of the things that's so hard, uh, this sounds ridiculous, but about being on tour is that you're very public when you're public and then you shut the door to your room and you're just in a little room. And it's a very odd existence um, besides the fact that you never know where you are. So yeah, it's been strange. Um, and maybe I'll maybe I'll try what you tried. I'm, I'm not big enough to do that, but I like that idea of telling the publisher that you're not going out on the road. Uh, let me think. First of all, um, I've been touring a long time. I tried only touring about a week. When I was first starting out, though, uh, my first Myron Bolotar book, that paperback original, 15,000 print run, I used to be embarrassed. I made $5,000 from that book by the fourth Myron. I don't want to brag. I was making $6,000. (laughs) So I was on the road, and I would do, you guys are from New Jersey, so you know I'm from New Jersey, those Walden books in the mall. Yeah. So I'd be sitting at the table, playing with my pen, you know, seeing like make it into a mustache. <laughs> so I could click it by going like this with my nose, then play hockey with it. And then it'd always be a person who would come up to me at the signing, very sincerely look me in the eye and say, do you have the new John Grisham book? <laughs> I'd say, no, I got something better. <laughs> Uh, so I you, mean, you, you tour a week, and that way you each book. I now do. From, the book comes out on Tuesday. I do Tuesday to Sunday, and that's it. Well, you're as lazy as I am. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's I, not a tour. That's but you a, know what it is? It's like you say. It's the old. Um, it's the, I quote John uh, Fogelberg, as I often do. Um, the song <laughs> "Same Old Lang Syne," where he said, "The audience is heavenly, but the traveling is heavenly." Right. I mean, I do love the audience. I do love interacting with the readers. I think if we can talk to you for 400 pages, you should be able to see the person behind. Uh, and we are outgoing people, as you see here, but we're also introverts. Uh, by definition, an introvert is a person who does not gain energy by meeting people. They lose it. So we do this for a while. I don't know if you have the same thing, John, same oh, thing, Christina. Sure. And then yeah. all you want to do is run back and be in your little room alone. It's not because you don't love everybody you meet, it's just your personality, which I think is why we're writers. Do you agree with that, guys? I, there was an article I just saw that, that, that had like 10, you know, uh, sort of categories of the extroverted introvert, it was called, and that I thought that was exactly what I am. Yeah, perfect. Like, you, you get out and you do stuff, and then you just need to retreat. So, how, But how much pressure does your publisher put on you to tour? 
uh, almost zero now. I, I think for people at a certain level, right. the touring is not as relevant as it was 10 years ago. Um, Do you think it's still, is it still important for some writers? Yes. Um, I don't necessarily think it's as important for some of us as it is for others. I think, uh, you know, a friend of mine named Mortales just did a huge tour. Yeah. And I think it was immensely valuable for him to go and work the trenches and, and get word out. I think um, other writers, maybe not quite as much. Also, in the old days, we would have publicity in each town. You'd have Good Day Chicago or the Chicago Tribune to write a story about it. You have that. You don't have that anymore. So it's only the event. And frankly, I think it's a great idea that we do this to stir up interest in business. I hope that it also stirs up interest in business for writers who aren't quite as well-known as we are. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it, first, for, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not it. Let's, let's just make this very clear, as if anyone needs to hear this. I, these guys are giants, and I need to tour. Um, but part of the, you know, I'm friends with Amor also. Amor told us who wrote A Gentleman in Moscow and Rules of Civility. He's wonderful. Both of us have slideshows that we do. And I did it when I came to Virginia. Um, and I, we found that for writers like us, we don't write, we don't write a book a year. It takes a long time to write these books for whatever reasons. And, um, the, you know, sort of connecting with the audience through visual stuff and, uh, the research that we've done is a way that both of us have found to connect with people and to kind of get the word out about our books. So it's been useful for me for that reason. You know, back in the back in the old days, uh, the firm was published in '91 before the internet, and uh, you went on tour. And I, I toured, I think, ten or twelve cities with the firm, and and then did the big tour the following year. But you would go to uh, pick a city, and you would have uh, radio. You'd have two or three print interviews. You'd, you'd have your book signing at a, at a nice store and hopefully you know, a crowd. You may do something afterwards. You may do early morning TV the next morning. And it was, you know, it was a lot of publicity. And that's, it doesn't work that way now. Uh, one of my favorite stories was in, I was in San Francisco uh, in a very nice hotel that Doubleday was paying for. And I, I got up at 5 o'clock in the morning and, and walked in the dark down the street to the uh, early TV show, the early morning news, whatever it's called in San Francisco. And I got there, still dark, and uh, the show comes on, and they said, well, you know, we, we have you for 10 minutes uh, halfway through. And there was a, uh, you know, a disaster somewhere, a car wreck or something, or a celebrity divorce or some God help us, something. And they kept, they kept, I was in the green room, and they kept coming back and said, okay, well, we've got, we, you're down to eight minutes, and we're going to put you on, uh, you know, uh, 45 minutes into the show. And then the, 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 the car wreck got worse. They come back, another explosion. They say, well, we, we, we have five minutes for you, uh, and we're going to put you on to the very end, okay? And they really came in at the last moment and said, sorry, we're just out of time. And I got up and walked back in the dark uh, to the hotel, <laughs> and I called, I probably called Suzanne Hurst from Doubleday. I called somebody at Doubleday, and I said, okay, this is what my morning has been like. And now I'm going to sit here in this very expensive hotel room you're paying for, and I, I have telephone conversations, telephone interviews. It was three Bs, Baltimore, Baton Rouge, and Birmingham, three newspapers. In the, in the Ritz-Carlton in San Francisco, I'm talking to these people on, on the phone. Right, you could do it at home. I'm, I, I could do it at home. And I said, this is not very well planned. I'm going home as soon as it's over. And that was my, you know, my, my final book tour. Enough complaining about it. No, I will tell you, if, if I'm, it's just sort of the same, the same tour kind of thing I was telling you when I first started. And no one would show up. And I would sit there to Walden Books playing with my pen. And I wrote this in an essay actually for the New York Times that some of you might have re uh, read. Uh, during, it was one right before Thanksgiving. And I'm doing that. And I'm, I literally am playing with the pen. I'm trying to see, you know, again, if I can do this. How I played this great hockey game at a flare versus a Bic. And it was a really good hockey game. And I'm playing with my bookmarks. Someone comes up, asks me where the new John Grisham is. Someone, the next person comes up and asks me where the bathroom is. <laughs> They bought four copies of my book. No one is buying it. And as I'm about to leave, I tell a story all the time, but an old man comes shuffling over to me, and he's got a hanky that I hope was yellow, um, <laughs> working his nose really well. And I'm expecting, like, one of these kind of, you know, the guys we always meet on tour that also have these theories that JFK was killed by Captain Crunch, and he wants to tell you about it. <laughs> Pinwheel hat, the whole thing. And, he, and I remember he walks up to me, and he says, is that, is that your book behind you on the shelf? And I go, uh, yeah. And he goes... Well, what's that like? And I go, what do you mean? And he says, you're living my dream. You have a book published. What's that like? And just kind of turned and walked away. And I always try to remember that 
no matter how good a tour is going or no matter how badly a tour is going, because that was the dream. Wow, that was deep. Give me a moment. <laughs> Sorry to bring us down. Okay, uh, be honest. Have you ever uh, gone to a bookstore and sold zero? Yes. Oh, no doubt. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. I had one where I sold, uh, the, the person only had two paperbacks, and I managed to sell them both. And I went back to the front desk, and I said, you know, do you have any, any more of my book? <laughs> and they said, let me check the computer. What's your name? <laughs> That, your first book you had since you were driving out of your trunk, weren't oh, you? Had yeah, them selling them out yeah. of your trunk. Well, your car. A Time to Kill uh, was 5,000 copies. A publisher, I was broke. I was a broke lawyer, but I had more money than my publisher. And uh, <laughs> there was no money for uh, publicity, promotion, anything. So I had to make it work. I bought 1,000 of 5,000 copies. And I was going to you know, make some money on retail and royalty. I had it all figured out. And so uh, in my hometown, there was not a real strong bookstore, but we had a nice library. So I went to my librarian. I said, um, you know, I, this is, I grew up in this town. I'm, I'm, I've been, my wife's from here. We, I know everybody, Rotary Club, whatever, uh, church. Um, let's have a book party at the library. I'll bring in the books, and I, I'll invite the whole town, and it's going to be a grand event. Okay, and it was. It was a big party. A lot of folks showed up, and, and we actually were so stupid. We took a 1,000 books down there. You know, and I have photos of my kids climbing on a thousand copies of A Time to Kill. And, um, and we sold a bunch of books. But when the party was over, I still owned 882 copies of A Time to Kill. So I, Those are worth a lot now. They were, yeah, they were, I wish I had them back. Uh, and I had an invoice coming to pay for the things, you know. So uh, I started going to other libraries and, and all over the state. I went to like 30-something libraries and, and had a trunk full of uh, books. And finally... Uh, I, I had one day where I sold nothing. I was in a library, and um, I sat there, and a guy finally walked in, and he picked up A Time to Kill and was talking to me about it. There was nobody else around me. Once, you, once the staff realizes at a bookstore that it's going to be a washout, the staff disappears. <laughs> when, when, you, when you get there, they're so happy to see an author. The staff is all over you, okay? And, 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 and you walk in and think, well, hey, this is a nice crowd, okay? It's all staff. And then, and then you, and you, see, you wonder, are, are, these, are these people work here? Are they, are they buying books? And, they, and right at the, the moment when you, you're supposed to start signing and there's nobody there, they just vanish. I don't know where and they, they go. Have, don't they have the best excuses? It's raining, so no one showed up. It's a beautiful day. Yeah, Who's yeah. going to come to a bookstore? Yeah, yeah. It's too dark out. It's too, what do they need? Dusk with a overcast sky? It's always they always have some great excuse, don't they? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 So you sit there, and this guy walked up. This was not a bookstore. This is a library, and he was talking to me, and he was really into my book. And I noticed he was flipping the pages, and the the guy sat, stood there and read the first chapter of A Time to Kill and gave it back to me. <laughs> and what? And walked out of the store without. It was only eighteen dollars, you know. Come on, man, give me give me eighteen dollars. So no, that was my one goose egg. So I, I had a goose egg. I had several. I sold two or three. Um. So Kathy Griffin, who is has has got some stuff going on right now. But back in the day, she had a show called Life on the D-List. I don't know if any of you remember this show. And my husband was sort of mystified that I was obsessed with it. I loved this show. And he's like, why exactly do you like watching this show so much? And I realized because it's like being an author on tour, her life on the D-list. It was before she got famous. And so everything in her life was an indignity in one way or another. You know, she would show up and there'd be nobody there or she'd be, you know, remember in Spinal Tap where they're walked through the back of the auditorium and they get lost and they, that, that's her, her, the whole show was like that. She was just never treated with respect and always scrambling. And it, I just found it hilarious because it felt surreal. And I was, I said to my husband, it would be really, I think it would be really interesting to like follow a mid-list writer on book tour and see what it's really like to be out there doing it. Cause it's tough. I mean, it's much easier when you have bestsellers and can, you know, and, and can expect an audience, but when you're just getting started, it's a tough thing. And yet those are the people who, you know, want to be out there getting their name, uh, in the public. Well, I wouldn't say your D list. You've come <laughs> Not anymore. I'm uh, maybe C list now. No. Are you writing these days? 
I am. I'm working on a new novel that's so much fun that, like you, I want to stay home and just do it. Um, for one thing, because I get to be in my pajamas, which is always wonderful. Right, stop, um, you stop. You write in your pajamas. Well, you know, I write in the most comfortable clothes okay. that I own, which are probably not the ones that anyone wants to see me in ever, including Harley, my can we, family. can we talk about your writing attire? <laughs> I write naked. Um, <laughs> and the problem is I usually write at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, back to your routine, Christine. Enough of that. No, I'm done. But actually, this brings up uh, a question that I have for you because I'm working on a book that requires a lot of research and I'm reading and doing a bunch of work. And you're, meanwhile, publishing two books a year and they're long and involved. And I asked you earlier, and I don't think you gave me an answer. What about research? When do you do research if you're writing so quickly? Well, it's, it depends on the research. If it's, if it's um, research that I think is fun, things I need to see, maybe not fun, but interesting. Mm-hmm. For example, my research has taken me to death row in a number of states. That's fascinating, yeah. okay? It's not always fun. I've been to a lot of prisons, uh, talked to a lot of people in prison. Um, it's taken me to, uh, you know, foreign countries. It's taken me to uh, courthouses. Uh, judges' chambers. Uh, last week, I was in Washington, D.C. for three days just uh, riding around the city, walking the city because the next legal thriller takes place in Washington, going in courtrooms, watching uh, judges. And when I walk in a courtroom sometimes, you know, the judge will start looking at me like, what are you, what are you doing? Who, who, who are you? You're like, <laughs> you, yeah, yeah, you look for me. And so just, just you know, that's, that's the fun research. The book research is something I've always hated since law school. And what I'll do, I always take the lazy way out. And uh, I live in Charlottesville, University of Virginia. has a great law school there. And I'll hire a, a, a student at UVA mm-hmm. to get, and give them a list of things to research. They give me these beautiful memos, and I just plug them in the novel. And people think I'm a genius, you know, I, <laughs> because I know all this law, you know. It's some other kid, some kid research for me. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's how I do the research. But, again, I, I don't um, – I told you it's, it may look busy, Okay, I'm very disciplined about it, but it's uh, you know I write almost every. I don't write as much as Stephen King, thank God. Every day plus Christmas, right? (laughs) He writes four books a year. But uh, when when I'm working, I I write three or four hours in the morning, Mm -hmm. and then take off midday and 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 tend to the business end of it. You know, phone Mm -hmm. calls, interviews, calling New York. Uh, But it's not uh, it's not that hectic. It looks hectic. What about you? Actually, my schedule is fairly similar. I do my best writing in the morning three or four hours. Toward the end of a book, I'm a streak writer. So if a book is 200, 400 pages long, I'll usually do the last 200 pages in a month. I did the last 40 pages of home in one, in one day, the last 40 pages. Wow. Won't be a good day, not a pretty day. You don't want to hang around me that day. It's like my kid's like, throw daddy a banana and run. You know, my assistant's here. She can tell you I grow a playoff beard like a hockey player. She knows not to ask me any questions because I'll just bite her head off. And I just, and, and I go through it that way. But you do have to, I, and I think this is what you're saying, and, and, and John, you can address this a little bit. Um, being an art, wherever people want to call it, I hate all that stuff, you have to treat it like it's a job. The same way a plumber can't say, oh, I'm too important to do pipes today. You're best off if you're trying to produce pages. I don't care. You know, Philip Roth had the same philosophy where amateurs wait for inspiration. The rest of us just get to work. So what, what kind of deadline would force you to write 40 pages on the last day? It's just how I feel. I mean, it's not like I have to do it that way. I see the ending, and I just, I, I, I don't want to go to sleep. I don't want to do anything until it's all the way over. Maybe it's like completing a race and I'm exhausted. So, you know, I just want to push myself through. It's, not, it's never an artificial deadline. You know, if the book is due June 1, I'm not doing it at May 31. I may be doing it May 25th. But usually it's just once I can see the ending, I can think I can do nothing. I become ridiculously obsessed until I get there. So are you on an annual uh, schedule? Yeah, I did two last year. I think this is my, th- I think I just finished my 31st book. Oh, my God. And since I write one a year, <laughs> thank you. I do about one a year, so I think I started when I was like seven. Um, <laughs> but you're about the same. You're around 32, aren't you? Well, I don't know who's counting these things because they're not counting properly. Uh, this is the 30th novel Camino Island is. 
Um, but actually, I've written six kids' books. They're novels. Right. Sure. And then there's a collection of short stories, and there's a nonfiction book. So that's like 38 or 39. Yeah, so. But uh, but uh, we're celebrating. But don't you don't you do don't you do the same sort of thing? Do you streak or do you are you disciplined with that? Even at the end, you're going only those two or three. Hours? I start a new novel every year, a legal thriller, on January the first. Actually, January the first. I'm going to write something January the first. Do you have the idea beforehand? Oh, long before. Okay, so you've. When long do you before. start coming up with the idea? That's how long. Uh, well, it that can happen in a flash. Uh, something in a headline, something on television, or it can be an outline that festers for years. But but either way, it's starting January first. I'm going to start the book January first. I just finished the legal thriller that I'll publish in October. Okay. Right. And so January first of this year is time for the next legal thriller. And I'll start it then. And I give myself six months. I promise it to double day by July the 1st. And I'm always close, you know, right. maybe a week early, week late, but they know it's coming. And toward the end, I'll give them the specific date. You know, I'll tell you, I'll have it to you by July the 2nd. And they plan everything accordingly. And then that sets in motion the production schedule. Uh, but that's been a very reliable uh, schedule for a long time. And I, 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 I like that. I like the discipline of uh, knowing what I've got to do next year. Did I read someplace you don't allow the internet in your office? Is that how you I have it? I have internet in the house. My office has no phone, no fax, no internet, and it's it's a little it's a little uh, building beside the main house, and it's uh, I love it at seven in the morning when it's dark and you know same cup of coffee and it's just me and the screen and the typewriter and the keyboard, and I, I love those early from seven to nine. I don't talk to anybody, and it's very very quiet. What's your schedule? I mean, you know, I have three boys and now two of them are gone, but early morning is tough because, you know, Eli's off to school and there's the dog and I'm the mom and my husband works in the city in New York. Uh, so I was just thinking as you were talking that that sounds kind of ideal, but I'm also not, I, I'm, I'm kind of mystified by both of you in that uh, I I think I just write really poorly because I have to revise so much. Like I need time to sit with my writing and then I and then I come back to it and come back to it again. And like this the last book that I did, which I found very hard to write, A Piece of the World, because partly because it's about real people and also because it was a lot of research to kind of get the story right. But it just I had to pare back again and again and again. I wanted it to be very spare because it's a potentially sort of sentimental story and I didn't want any of that in it. So it took a while for me to get to that. Um, so does, do you not feel that you need to let it percolate? I, I rewrite, I mean, I, I don't know about how you guys do it. Instead of writing like this, I kind of write like this where each day I go back, almost like to get a running start and I reread what I did the day before. And every maybe 75 to 100 pages, I'll go back all the way to the start and, and I'll, go, I'll go through it. So I rewrite a lot um, that way as I go along, less as, as I've gone on. And I've been able to do more toward the end. But I do, I, I do do a lot of – I don't do a lot of research. I'm one of the few – I always joke them from the hum a few bars and fake it school of research. <laughs> but I don't write legal thrillers or real people. And also I always advise people who are trying to write – like John said, research is fun. Mm -hmm. Writing is not necessarily fun. Right. So I would always find excuses like, oh, geez, I got to write the scene in Park Avenue. I better go to Park Avenue and smell the hot dog stands and watch the girls walk by. <laughs> no, no, no. Write it now and then worry about the research yeah. later because you'll use research as an excuse not to write. Yeah. I, I mentioned a while ago, I, I spent uh, a couple, three days in Washington, uh, I guess two weeks ago. I'm al almost finished with the manuscript. So I've gone through the whole story. It all takes place in D.C. Uh, and so I, I, I call it writing soft. I'll write a section soft right. without the details, mm -hmm. okay? But, but by the time I go do the research, I have a list because I've written the book. Right. I've got to see this place, this place, this place, and it makes it a whole lot easier. I do the same thing you do as far as re revising. Mm -hmm. I start each day by, by reading what I wrote the day before. And it really gets you in the rhythm again. You, get, you see the story coming again. You also make a lot of changes, a lot of revisions. And after about 100 pages, I'll stop and go back at the very beginning and, and read it through again. Do either of you use paper or do you I both? I do. I write longhand. Part of my problem, obviously, also. Amor does, too. Um, but I, I know you guys don't. But I do. Oh, you do? Yeah. So you write on a... I do it five or ten pages like in advance. I'll do the first, I'll do five pages by handwriting, and then I'll put it into the computer uh, like the next day or the day after, and that way my first draft is my second draft. 
So that's how I, that's, I don't, I don't do the whole book in longhand. I had, uh, when I was in the 10th grade, I had uh, Mrs. Tucker for typing and she had polio and she car- she carried a grudge. Uh, because of that, she was tough, and she walked with a cane, and she would threaten you with a cane. And we had the old Underwood typewriters with a manual throw the carriage. We had to be able to type 60 words a minute with no mistakes when I was 15 years old. That's the way I learned to type. And so thank God for Miss Tucker. I, I could always type real fast. But, you know, so I know, when I, They don't really teach typing anymore. They don't teach you. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. A few students ran through the smoke as they went from building to building, not sure where exactly the safe places were. Campus security and the city of Princeton police raced onto the scene, followed closely by half a dozen fire trucks, then ambulances. The first of many patrol cars from the New Jersey State Police arrived. Trey left his backpack at the door of an office building, then called 911 to report how suspicious it looked. The timer on the last smoke bomb inside the backpack was set to go off in 10 minutes, just as the demolition experts would be staring at it from a distance. At 1.05, Trey radioed the gang. A perfect panic out here. Smoke everywhere, tons of cops. Go for it. Denny replied, cut the lights. If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. So do you guys outline or do you plan your books in advance, plan them out pretty carefully? Uh, I outline. I'm one of the few writers who will admit to okay. using an outline because most writers lie and they say, oh, I just create my character and then once my character comes to life, I don't know what he or she's going to do. <laughs> I just follow my character into the action and create, yeah, blah, 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 blah. That's true. That's what writers actually say. I've they heard do. them say they that. Do. They do You've say heard that, that yeah. yeah. Uh, but, when they start with the, yeah, God comes down and my fingers start yeah. moving across the keyboard. You know, we write some pretty intricate plots and the, the only way yeah. you can do that is doing the hard work first Outlining, planning, outlining, and planning. And um, one of my rules for writing that uh, I try to stick to, uh, this is one I do stick to, don't write the first scene until you know the last scene. Mm. John Irving is one of my favorite writers, and I've heard heard he has said, I'm not sure it's true, that he, he writes the last sentence before he writes the first sentence. Well, I'm not quite that smart, but I, but I know my last scene before I, I know where the whole book is going. Now, you can't outline 400 pages in 100,000 words because it, that, that takes some of the fun out of it because you're, you're always going to be surprised at, at, um, at what happens, uh, what a character may do, which character may need to be killed. That's, I always enjoy that. Killing them off <laughs> yeah. is a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, you just never know. And, and, again, that's part of the fun of writing. But, but when you know the final scene when you start – you're never going to get lost. Right. And all three of us know writers who have great ideas, a great idea for a novel, can't wait to get started, jump into it with both feet, write like crazy for a year, and then stop because they're lost. Right. And they've wasted a year. It's, it's, really, it's really hard to fix one when you're in that deep and you don't know where you're going. And again, it's too hard. The work is too hard to waste with a lot of uh, words that aren't going to be used. So I outline extensively. The other thing is you can... Uh, you know, without even realizing it, if you if you don't plan your novel, you can like a small thing can lead you off course, and suddenly people find that they're way over here when they really wanted to be over here. That's which is why I think it's important to know. I did an event recently with Lisa C, who wrote the Humming, Hummingbird Lay, and it's her new book. Yeah, and first of all, this was kind of crazy to me. She said that she reads books by reading the first chapter and the last chapter, and then the second chapter and the penultimate chapter. She reads to the middle and she says she stops if she's bored in either direction. I was like, that's the craziest thing I have ever heard. Um, But she also kind of writes that way. Like she writes the first chapter and the last chapter, and then she kind of fills in. She doesn't really do it chronologically. Anyway, everyone has their own systems with that. I've never heard of that one. I know. Uh, That's a strange one. Do you outline Harlem? I, oh, well, I just create a character and then it happens. No. <laughs> I'm sort of in between. And maybe we, you know, sometimes we say it in different ways. So 
I know the beginning and I know the end. I know that first grab your hook, obviously, and I know who did it and how it's going to happen. I compare it to driving from where we are right now, my home state of New Jersey, to California. I may go Route 80. Chances are I'm going to go via the Suez Canal or stop in Tokyo, but I pretty much always end up in L.A. E.L. Doctorow has a quote on writing where he says that writing is like driving at night in the fog with just your headlights on. You can only see a little bit ahead of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. So I usually outline a chapter or two ahead, and I do know a couple of signposts along the road, but I don't do an extensive outline to start. So I don't think I'm an outliner or what they call a pantser. And this also reminds me of the old saying that we writers are a little bit like we of the Hebrew faith. Ask 10 of us how we do something. You'll get 11 different answers. <laughs> the secret, of course, is anything that makes you that makes you write. Like just, just to stay on this topic, but to move off it, I don't write in the same spot every day. I get I use up places. So if I'll go to a Starbucks for a while, that'll stop working. I worked for a while in the stop and shop. The Stop and Shop has a deli, the one um, by Tyson's Corner or whatever that place is up there in Waldwick or White. You guys know what I'm talking about. Monvale, right? The, and, it's, and I used to sit by the Olive Loaf, and I wrote really well there for a while. <laughs> and strangest but true, two books ago, I wasn't writing well. I took an Uber into New York. I felt tremendously guilty about spending the money, even though it, I started justifying, you know, well, the cost of parking in New York. And then anyway, I wrote really well in the back of the Uber, so I started taking Ubers wherever I went. <laughs> So trains, I, I use up places, sometimes. a plane will work. I'll start going on a plane more or, or things like that. But I, so I don't know, does that count me as an outliner, do you think, John? Or do you do it a little bit like that I'm saying? you crazy as hell. Forget the olive loaf. <laughs> I think you're like the woman who writes one chapter at a time, front and back, front and back. I've never heard this stuff before. I don't know how y'all do that. No, I, I, I do write at the same spot every day for the last 20 books. But are you the, is your outline as detailed? Like, is, are you sort of outlining the way I sort of describe it or your outline pretty detailed and you follow it? Like, you know, chapter seven is going to have this and chapter 14 is going to have this. In the outline, I, I, I go to chapter one and I write a paragraph. What's going to happen? Chapter two, paragraph, what's going to happen? Who are the characters who'll be, who'll be introduced? And all the way through chapter 40. Funny story, when I wrote, uh, when I finished The Firm, I was anxious to jump back in the next book, so I, I had outlined the Pelican Brief, and it was about a 45-page outline. And I, I sent it to my agent in New York. He is, he's, he's deceased now, but he was, he was bad to leak things. He liked to leak stuff to Hollywood. Um, and he, he always blamed somebody else for the leaks, you know. Sound familiar? And so <laughs> he, he leaked, the, uh, he leaked the, the Pelican Brief outline to somebody in Hollywood, well, they have trouble reading 45 pages in Hollywood. And so somebody out there got the outline and condensed it to six pages, which is the max, I think, for Hollywood. And so once they got it down to six pages, they could understand it. And Alan Pakula, the director, uh, saw the six-page outline and called and said, I want to I, I I buy the film rights for this movie. I want to do this movie. And I, I said, well, I haven't finished the book yet. And he said, well, but based on, or is it going to vary from the outline? I said, I don't think so. I'm halfway through it. This is where it's going. He said, okay, well, I want to do this movie. And we started negotiating the film based off the condensed outline that I had done. So it's, it's not, they're not that involved now. You know, we, we're, I, we're always looking for ways to cut corner and get lazier. And after 35 books, I've learned a lot of tricks about yeah. getting lazier. And so I, I, I've cut back on the outlines a little bit, but I still always know where I'm going. I'm actually outlining my new book much more than I've done in the past. I've always had a plan that I, you know, that has variations as you go. But with this new one, it's kind of an epic story. It's the hidden uh, story, hidden history of the convict women who transformed Australia. So it's really quite epic by my standards. Um, it starts in Glasgow, it moves to London, and it then goes to Australia, and it spans 40 years. So um, I've discovered that I it's been really helpful and to outline, but also um, what I've discovered with this book is, you know, there are lots of rubrics that you use when you write, and lots of sort of different ways of creating, crafting a plot. And one is the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, the idea of the steps that uh, uh, a hero goes through uh, that, that follow sort of specific um, paths. And with this novel, I realized as I was working on it that it fits beautifully in this rubric and I'm able to sort of use it as a guide as I'm going. So that's been very exciting. Who knows how it will work out because I'm just starting, but. 
It sounds pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's really fun to do. And, and, you know, I think even writers who've written lots of books, maybe not as many as you guys, but my lots of books, meaning like nine, um, uh, are often looking for inspiration over and over again. I mean, every book I do feels different. So I'm always sort of looking at new ways to approach a story. And I'm always, I read, you know, Harlan Coben's 10 rules for writing fiction or whatever. I, you know, God help you if you're going to follow that stuff. I know. (laughs) Now I know. Now I know. We don't, we don't look down on you because you can't do a book a year. Okay. We're not, we're not, we're not being judged. We're not that type. No, we're not that type. We're not that. I appreciate it. Writers are not that mean. (laughs) That's, that sounds like a great topic. What about you, Harlan? Do you talk about what you're working on? I just finished a book called don't let go. That'll be out um, in September. Um, I've mentally removed from my brain what it's about. <laughs> and I've been working on a lot of uh, TV stuff. I, I have a couple shows in, I've done in France, and I'm doing a, a Netflix show that I'm, that I'm working on and stuff like that. You know, the usual. It's like, what, what do we do? We finish a book, we start another one. Not January 1. I start as soon as I start. Now it's like time, like, you're exhausted, right? The, the book's done. I'm like a boxer that went 15 rounds. I can't even lift my arm anymore. <laughs> and then suddenly you start seeing in the distance there's my next opponent. You start trying to get ready, and I don't know when I'll be ready, but I'm trying now to to open my brain up and start thinking of what's what's the next idea. Do you uh, you don't write for TV, do you? I don't write. I, I actually, in these cases, I'm executive producing, creating, and and some of them are off original ideas, and some of them are off my books. I don't actually write the screenplays, but I, uh, the scripts, but I rewrite them a lot, and the story's all mine. So it's uh, it's a lot of involvement. Do you enjoy you? that? I, I'm loving it, actually. I think because, you know, again, we've spent, you know, written 30 books. Like that. That's a lot of time alone in a room. And to be out, and, and also we're the boss. Like when we do it, and I love that, we have complete creative control. It's been kind of fun to collaborate with really talented people and to see how that works and to, and, and maybe mentally to let go a little bit, not have complete control over things. But I don't, I also don't do it very much in Hollywood where they'd be a pain in the ass and not listen to me. Where I go, I really do have almost uh, fascist-type power on, right. on over the story. Right, right. You know, Michael Connolly is writing a lot of Bosch. Yeah. Bosch is a big success. Uh, it's very well done. Yeah. Uh, I, I enjoy his books, but yeah, he's, I think he's uh, doing a lot of the writing for that. Yeah, no, I, I, and, I, and I think one of the reasons I wrote two books last year was to sort of prove my everybody wrong who said, oh, you're getting cause I did two TV series last year. You're getting too involved. You won't be able to write your book. So they really are a very different muscle um, for yeah. me. I've tried uh, screenwriting. Uh, I've written two or three. It's not something I really enjoy. Uh, it, it's a different set of muscles. Right. And just because you can write popular fiction doesn't mean you can sit down and crank out a screenplay right. or a teleplay. It, it's, it's different. Uh, and again, it, you know, if, if, I have, if I have that kind of time, well, you know, I've written a, a, three or four screenplays, and, and most of them are not very good. Um, and, I, you know, you can't, I hadn't made any money off those. It's a, kind of a waste of time. So I know I can take that same amount of time and, you know, do a novel right. and, and, or, you know, maybe two a year. Uh, and, and, and it's far more rewarding in every aspect for me to do that. So I've given up on the movies. I mean, I, I can't, we talk about movies every day. If you look at if the model I had 20 years ago with the first four or five movies, those, we sold those, uh, we sold the film rights to the firm, Pelican Brief, Client, Chamber, and Rainmaker, um, from the manuscript before publication. And, and, and for, for really, back then, we couldn't believe the money we were getting, okay? And Michael Crichton would sell his latest novel, and I would come back and say, give me $1 more than Michael Crichton. And he would, he, I never met the guy, and we had the biggest racket going. And we were, he'd set a record, I'd set a record. He'd set a record, I'd set a record. It was so much fun. And they were just throwing money at us. They would take the manuscript and go make the movie within a year or two. Well, the movies came out. All of them had big cast, big box office success, Everybody made money, and that model doesn't work today. I don't get it. And I can't do a thing today to get a movie made. If I gave the film rights away to a studio or to a big production company, if I wrote the screenplay for free and said, here, take it, go make the movie, it wouldn't move the needle one bit. What do you think it is? Well, it's a studio system. It's all broken. They're making Wonder Woman mm-hmm. and Spider-Man. Right. That's the concept. Uh, they're making movies today. They'd rather spend $200 million making uh, Spider-Man that might gross a billion in China. 
Well, that's a good, that's a smart move if mm-hmm. it works. Mm-hmm. And that's all they see. And so to make any other kind of movie, uh, that's why everybody's flocking to television. Yeah. Because that's but what television's doing, you know, is also doing a good job. And yeah. so people are going to crime fiction there. Uh, and, but I agree with you. The movies are, I've tried a million different times, a million different ways, yeah. and it always somewhere along the line falls apart. It's yeah. just, it's it's really kind of annoying. I love these guys. Well, Camino, Camino Island came out today, so the phone's going to ring like crazy for the next month. And, every, you know, a lot of phone calls. And when they call, they've got they've got all this financing. You know, they got tons of financing. They got they got credits. They got relationships with stars. They know the big directors, and so you you know you you keep talking. The phone calls go away. Three or four will hang around, and if you get serious with one, by the time they get down the contract, they don't have a dime. You know, they can't get any financing. You know, they want it for free, and it's it's you can waste a lot of time, even where we are today, dealing with film and television. Mm-hmm. And actually, one of my early um, publishers who also published you in paperback is. It warned me when I started, when Tell No One came out and I got the same kind of thing with big money offers and, and all of that, and they're flying out to LA to pitch ideas. And she warned me. She said, just don't get involved in that world because I know too many writers have gotten lost in that world and forgotten to write their books. And she's an example of one of your things that you were very unhappy with. And it actually, it, it, and I went back home and I never went out there again. And, and said, like, if they want to buy it or whatever, they can turn into it. I, I, for, 15, 20 years, I completely stayed away. Now I'm going back in very slowly, eyes open, knowing what I'm doing. But you can really get your head turned and lost in that world. And we're novelists. I mean, we want to write now. And every Hollywood writer I know dreams they were one of the three of us sitting here right now. There's not a Hollywood writer who doesn't want to be here. That was was what I was thinking when you said... Um, you know, I've had all the success writing novels and I don't want to waste my time with that. I think there are so many people on the opposite end who would want to be doing what you're doing, who are, you know, writing screenplays or whatever, and maybe selling them. I know a lot of people in Hollywood who are even selling screenplays and have fairly successful careers who don't get their movies made. I mean, that's an extra step. So, you know, it's, it can be very anonymous, I think. Yeah. And I I think the three of us would admit that, um, without, you know, trying to sound the least bit uh, smug, uh, far from it, we're lucky to be where we are. Yeah. We're lucky to be, and we, we, I don't take that luck for granted. Lucky. That's why we still work every day, because uh, there are a lot of folks who, who would love to be here. And yeah. I, f- I feel very, very fortunate to be able to, to write for a living. I mean, I think we've all been on that. I was on a panel once where uh, they said, you know, what's the downside of being a best-selling novelist? And my answer was, Nothing. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is the greatest gig. It's as great as, as you think. And <laughs> I think the reason why th- those who, who, are, who are lucky enough to reach this and stay there, we have, a, an, I think, an incredible appreciation. We know that each one of you walks into this huge bookstore and has a lot of books you can choose. And I still am ridiculously flattered that you've chosen my book to spend the money, to spend the time, to choose me. That's a responsibility I take seriously. If I let you down, I feel terrible. And I will. I hope that never goes away, don't you think? Right. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we appreciate every one of you guys being here. I don't care how big you get. And if you don't, you're, not, you're starting to phone it in, your books are going to suck. Trust me. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's the side of it. Not be sounding smug at all, that we are ridiculously lucky people. Right. Well, it's a very intimate relationship. You know, when you're inside a book, you're inside someone's head. And it's a, it, I, was, I read a book today partly for research for my book by Tess Gerritsen. She wrote a thriller called The Bone Garden, and it, but it's about the 1830s, and it's exactly the period that I'm writing about. And she's writing about a midwife and all this. And uh, as she researched, she did all this research. But um, I, it was a, it's an, I mean, I was reminded anew that it's an intimate experience being in someone's head and her vocabulary, the way she thinks, the way the story unfolds. Um, you know, you have to make a choice to enter that world. And you all have lots of choices, especially with all the good television that's on these days, right? Um, so, how, you know, how do you decide to, that you're going to devote at least a day or two, right? At least. And that would be a lot of time to reading someone, to being inside someone's head in that way, to paying for it, you know, to, to experiencing a world that someone's created. It's an, it's an honor to, to create that world. We've got a few minutes uh, to take a question or two from the audience. Just stand up. We'll, we'll repeat the question for the uh, benefit of our listeners. And um, who's got a question? 
um, I was reading the the back of your book there, and I saw you were intertwining uh, Andrew Wyeth into the story, and I'm also very um, I love art, so I was wondering if you were planning on doing any more like that. Um, and then the question that I had for the panel was, what is the favorite book of yours? And then what is your favorite book that's not yours? Okay, Christina, why don't you go first okay, with, just, uh, just, I will say, with your Wyatt painting. I will say quickly that um, I, I loved uh, focusing on Andrew Wyeth, who, is, who was, as a person, charismatic, brilliant, Handsome, movie star handsome uh, and just a delight because he was such an interesting, brilliant guy. So I loved writing about him, especially in contrast to the subject of his painting, Christina's World, who led a very quiet, sheltered life. So the, the relationship between the two of them was really complicated and fun. And someday I may write about another artist. Um, as for my own favorite book, I think it's probably always my most recent book. Um, I like to believe that my books get better as they go. Oh, I'm not sure that's true, but I, I, I think it is. And uh, so I would say the one I just finished. And I'll think about my favorite other book. Your favorite of your books? You know, I, I have a very similar answer, Christina, that um, by Quinson's Home, which is Belleville <laughs> hardcover right behind me, is, uh, is currently my favorite. But I do think, I, I, I mean, part of it is that, you know, when you were like in college and you wrote this wonderful essay, you got a great grade on, and like you happen to find it around your kitchen, you read it now, you go, wow, this is crap. <laughs> what was I thinking? Because you don't like your younger self. Do you know what I mean? And so it's the same thing with books. Yeah. I read my older books. I, I see, you know, I had a, we just, um, just one look, at, which I wrote in 2003 or four, is going to be on, uh, on, on this French TV station uh, in, in two weeks. It's on Netflix now. I think it, now it's, on, it's on coming. Anyway, when I had to rewrite it to write, I'm like, oh my God, you, you know, it's, you see all of the seams in your old books. So that's why I usually um, pick the current uh, books. My favorite novel of all time is probably Camino Island um, by John Grisham. <laughs> Which happens to be available today for the first time. I would choose a Philip Roth novel if I was to pick one. Yeah, <laughs> I would choose something by Philip Roth. Probably Portnoy's Complaint would probably be if I had to pick one, which is impossible to ask. Uh, do you ever pick up random one of your books and just open it at random? I, I do this once a year and read a paragraph and go, ouch, that's, that's, <laughs> not, that's not very good. I was, I was in too big of a hurry. And that, that's a bad feeling. Yeah, or is. just the opposite, read a paragraph from an old book and go, that's pretty good. That's pre I, mean, you know, I suck now. It happens both ways. I suck now. What happened to yeah. me? Right? I did an audio book once. Who was that guy? And I kept changing. Like, oh my God, can I change this? Uh, yes. The book's already printed? Yes. Shit. No. Oh, my, I don't know. Uh, after, you know, so many books, uh, the, uh, Time to Kill will always be the sentimental favorite because it was, uh, you know, the first one and, and um, it was personal and it was... Um, uh, it took three years to write. It's the only book I've ever written without a deadline. It's probably better for that reason. But at the same time, I, I have a I have trouble going back and reading uh, a time to kill uh, because it, again, it was written thirty years ago. Yeah, I like some of the other ones I've written along uh, along the way. As far as having fun writing a book, uh, I've never had as I, I had a ball writing Calico Joe. It was a baseball book, and it was fun doing the doing the uh, research. But Camino Island was a hoot to write. It's all about books, booksellers, bookstores, rare books, stolen books, no lawyers anywhere in it. And it's a kind of a mystery set in a Florida resort town. When, when my first few books came out, some of the critics who didn't like them referred to them as beach books. And I said, okay, I'll show you a beach book. Here's, <laughs> here's the ultimate beach book, okay? Next question. With a secret weird tower at the top of the house. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll find that out when you read it, guys, yeah. what I mean. Okay, the question is, do we wake up in the middle of the night uh, with a great thought and, and get up right then and write it down uh, so we don't forget it? Uh, I can say no. Uh, I, don't, I don't do that. I'll just quickly say I do that all the time. Um, I, and I will say that your experience of writing Camino Island is the opposite of my experience writing A Piece of the World. It was torture to write that book. And it obsessed me to the extent that I, I, 
I got within a two month span, I got 18 stitches in my forehead from running into something. I broke my shoulder um, going over the handlebars of my bike. And I, and I got are such heavy drinkers, you know, it's, it's, it's I, know. I know it was Once bad. Ball, yeah, alcohol, the alcohol and literary, bad. just a, it's a bad mix. It's true. That, that's the understory. Um, no, but I was, I was in a fog of writing it and I would, I would have, I would wake up. It was awful. It was too much. It was, it took over. Yeah. Um, I'm more with John. Like, the problem is I used to, like, I would, you, know, for, you have a dream, it feels so real. Yeah. But then, like, you write it down, like, and I would look the next day and you'd be like, you know, blender with wings eats bear. You know, it makes <laughs> no sense whatsoever. So, no, I've never really gotten a good I, a good idea that way. If I, one time when I was under some influence of, of some drugs from an operation, I actually had an idea for the ending. I wrote it down and it kind of helped. But outside of that, never. Although, but I am looking for those drugs again, if anybody <laughs> Yeah, let's stay away from drugs. And uh, so to answer your question, though, or, or, or along the same lines, I think we probably all would agree uh, that one of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves as writers, when we have a great idea, a great thought, a great line, a great face, a great scene, something, if we don't write it down right then, it's probably going to be gone forever. So we do, t- I mean, I take notes all the time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. not at midnight. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm not waking up at midnight. Yes, sir. Who wants to rephrase that question? Uh, <laughs> well, do you do you ever put it down for good, or could you or could you, or, tin, you could you tinker forever? Do you feel like you put it down for, too Francis Ford Coppola told me when he did Rainmaker, and it was a great experience making the movie with him because he loves writers and he wanted me on the set all the time, and it was, we had a lot of fun doing it together. I, I contributed nothing, but but to be there with him. Uh, but he said, you know, he would tinker forever. He would, he could, he would never let it go. And he all, he proved that he, he, it took him six months to edit the film. He simply could play with it and not edit tinker forever. Um, you know, I'm not that way. That's why I love deadlines. I turn the book in, we go through the revision process, but I'm looking forward to the, when the, when the, I finally have to just let it go. Cause I'm tired of it by the end. By the end, I've written it four or five times in a, in a short period of time. And, and I, you know, I've never gone back and reread a book of mine with the exception of um, uh, Bleachers, which I read for the audio. And I'll never do that again, okay? <laughs> That's too much work. It's uh, a lot of work. I just want to say quickly that, uh, so when Orphan Train came out and I was traveling all over the place talking about it, there a question kept coming up. I'm not going to say what it was for people who haven't read the book, but there was something that that people were really angry about that happens in the book that they didn't feel I had adequately sort of led up to or explained. And uh, I said to my editor pretty quickly, like, oh, I just, what if we just insert a scene in, you know, in the, in the next printing? And she's like, never happen. It will never happen. We're not doing that. So anyway, flash forward um, and Peace of the World was coming out uh, in February. And in like November, she said, all right, knock yourself out. Write the scene. We're going to issue a new, we're going to do a whole new uh, cover, a whole new thing. And by the way, whatever you want to do, which was terrible pressure, but I did re-edit the whole book. I have never done that before, but it was kind of delightful to go back to a book that was two years old and be able to do just, just sort of take a pencil to it. I went through the whole book and edited it. And I added this 10 page scene. That was so bizarre. And I'll ne- probably never do it again, but it was kind of cool anyway. God, I'd hate that. <laughs> I really would. Um, I, I have found that I'm a little bit, I don't know if you agree with this guys or not, but I'm of the goldfish bowl effect of writing. That is if you give me 18 months to write something, 12 months to write something or nine months to write something, I'll probably write the exact same thing. It'll take me 18 months or 12 months <laughs> or nine months. And so once I've learned that, I've learned to let go a little a little faster. You know, when you tinker and you do that editing, and I'm doing that with the TV show a little bit, if you're showing it to somebody who is not as directly involved with you, they won't, it, it doesn't really change to them loving it, to them hating it, or anything, not even a degree of difference. Mm-hmm. It's just to you. And every once in a while, you learn that. It's like raising a kid. You finally have to let the kid go. He's going to go out. He's going to get knocked around. People are going to not like him or whatever else, but you have to let him go out in the world. And I, it's a good feeling for me. And I think, like John was saying, we get a little lazier as we get older. I, I'm willing to let go a little faster now. Are you? Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> yes, ma'am, right here. So you're asking, has technology changed the way we write, Harlan? For me, not, not at all. Um, one of the things about being a writer is I'm a writer because I'm terrible at everything else. 
I have no other marketable skills. If you ask me, like, what else I could be, like, I could be a duvet cover. That's like it. <laughs> I, I have nothing else. So when people start talking about the chains are destroying the business or the e-books destroying, I'm like a little kid, la, 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 I can't hear you. And... I write, and my feeling is if I just write the best book I can, you'll read it if it's on stone tablets or if it's an ebook or if it's. A, and so all I can worry about is how good my book is. I pay no attention to any of that other stuff. I don't know if Amazon's a good guy or a bad guy, if BN's a good guy. I don't care. I mean, I care, but I don't care. And so I pay no attention to it and just write. So for me, I can honestly say it has not changed one iota over the years I've written. I mean, you already know I write with a pen on a college-ruled paper. Uh, I have a very tablet, specific yeah. pen. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a stone tablet. I feel exactly the same way. Uh, same here. Uh, my only goal when I finish when I write a book is is to make it the best book I've ever written. And that may sound odd from somebody who writes so many books, but that's the goal every time. The, the only fear I have as a writer is that I'm going to write a book one day that that I love. You have to love them to finish them. Uh, and it's going to be read by people who matter to me, and they're going to say, oh, this ain't working. You know, this, this, this is not working here. You missed it, okay? I'm probably going to catch that earlier before I get to the end because my wife starts reading, you know, I'm about halfway through the process, and she has a very good eye and ear for it. Uh, but that's the only thing I, I worry about. I can't, I'm just like Harlan, I can't, well, we can't worry about um, – Ebooks and chain bookstores and Amazon and internet. I mean, you know, you drive yourself crazy. You know, we're we're all struggling to to sell more books in a cu- culture that buys fewer books. That's where we are. You know, we we've lost three thousand bookstores in the last fifteen years. So there are far few the old Walden bookstores. You know, used to when I published a book, um, you couldn't walk down a mall. There's a Walden, but you, you couldn't walk to the front door. For the display of my books, you know, all over the place. Those are gone now. B. Dalton's gone. Borders is gone. You know, so many independent stores are gone, you know. So that's the battle we're in. But again, we can't really worry about that. When, you, when you're trying to write the best story you can, I, you know, I don't write for, I don't have an uh, audience. I don't see an audience out there. I mean, I know I have a lot of fans who, who, want, a, who want the legal thriller every year, and I'm, I'm going to try to give them the best one I can possibly write. But if I thought about how many of them are out there and their reaction to it and whether they're going to be buying ebooks or paperbacks or, you know, that's stuff that we can't worry about. You have, you have to divorce yourself from that and just write. I will, can I just say, add one thing to that, though, which I don't think you guys have to think about, and I just don't think about much because I'm so bad at it, but publishers want you to do lots of s- social media. And writers, I think, are being really pushed to be public in a way that a lot of them aren't comfortable with. Um, and to be on Twitter and to be on Instagram and to be on Snapchat and Facebook and everything. And I think it's a lot, a lot is expected. Um, Dorothea Benton Frank, who I, I know you know as well, is doing Facebook live all the time. She's just doing it like at her home in, you know, Sullivan's Island. And um, there are some writers who are ta- who take to it and others who don't. And I think that kind of pressure, especially for emerging writers, can feel a little overwhelming when you're really just trying to write and you're expected to do all that. And if you're a writer, I, I, you know, I do the social media stuff. I think it's completely irrelevant. I'm, I realize it's, that's a, mm-hmm. I don't know any writer really who's made it because of it. And I always tell people who ask me about, well, how do you do Twitter? How should you do Facebook? The most successful book over the last, say, five or six years was Gone Girl um, by Gillian Flynn. That was probably the biggest breakout book. So I tell people, go on, look at Gillian's Twitter, look at her Facebook, look at, she doesn't have a Twitter. She has no Facebook. She hates any of that social media stuff. So don't worry about that also. I think that's something we didn't really have. We were told to visit bookstores. But I, I, I think the Internet's a tremendous curse for writers in a lot of ways. We know the distraction stuff. Mm-hmm. But also paying attention to that rather than just writing the next great book is, you know, if you'd like to do it, do it. But I don't really know of anybody who has had complete success doing it that way. The books, one of the things about this book is if, if you guys read it and like it, you can tell our people. That's the way it's always worked. That's the way people have always made it in this business. We have time for one more question. <laughs> the question is, what effect have critics and book reviews uh, had upon our careers over the years? Who wants to, who wants to be mean first? You, you do it. Uh, when I was, my first book was published uh, um, by a very small press, and I heard the New York Times Newgate Calendar was the guy's name, was going to review it. I, can't, I was like in my 20s. I can't tell you how excited I was. And the opening line of the review was, 
It's too bad Harlan Coben's Miracle Cure is so poorly written. <laughs> no, it's like, I think when you reach a certain stage, you, you, you always want, every, every writer you've ever met wants two things, more sales and more critical acclaim. Any writer tells you otherwise is full of crap. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's human nature. At the same time, I think at this stage of the game, it's not that big a deal. I don't read the Amazon reviews anymore. I don't pay attention to any of that. I read the reviews, but I can read them from a distance. I know nothing. I know a great one's not going to change my life. I know a bad one's not going to change my life. I think the New York Times used to have that power that they really don't have. I mean, the Times Book Review does not have the power that it used to have. Um, what I like about reviews is that I like um, review. I like thoughtful reviewers who tell you what you're doing. Like, so I've learned that I am obsessed with certain things that I never really knew I was obsessed with until people told me that, or for, that, for example, I tend to like writing about old ladies. And I was like, I think I do like to write about old ladies. That's, that's quite true, but it hadn't occurred to me that way. Um, or themes that are in a book. It's, it's, it's interesting to have people, the criticism aside, I find it really what I love about, people who take books seriously is one, how many people do and what a wonderful thing that someone's really reading your book and engaging with it, even if they have qualms about it. And two, that they're seeing things in it that you yourself might not have understood. So I, I love that part of it. My books have been um, slaughtered by <laughs> critics for so long that I'm, I'm, I'm Teflon. I mean, I just wish they'd leave me alone. Um, <laughs> Tom Clancy, before he died, he said he was uh, review-proof. You know, he couldn't hurt him. Just, just, and he said, just, just leave me alone. Yeah. You know, take your time and energy and, and review whatever you want to review, literary novels or whatever. Just, just leave me alone. And, um, you know, in, in the early days, uh, a long time ago, I would read, uh, you know, a couple of nice reviews and then read one that was bad and want to go out and start shooting people. Uh, so you realize you can't let it get under your skin like that, and so you just learn to ignore it. I don't read them. I don't read them. Uh, occasionally, um, I'll hear about a review from somebody in New York or a friend will see one. They'll say, well, don't read, don't read that review. I said, good, just don't send it to me. I'm not looking for them. I don't, I, I don't read reviews online. Occasionally, you know, about once every five years, somebody will write a real nice one, and, and it'll filter down to me, and I'll read it and say, that's nice, thank you. Whatever, but uh, you know, I'm not. It's it's a review. I'm not going to worry about it. All right, we are out of time. I want to thank Harlan, my guest on my show, <laughs> Harlan and Christina for being here. Thank you guys very much. Thank you, guys. a lot of fun. Thanks to my guest uh, Christina Becker Klein and Harlan Coben, and thanks to the wonderful staff here at Barnes and Noble and all the volunteers and loyal customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.